How are we all? Merry Christmas. Glad to be here with you this morning. Our prayer is that uh, if you've made it out of bed and through the Christmas presents and all the chaos of that, that uh, no matter what the rest of the day holds, whether it's kind of delight or, or dread, uh, that the fundamental historic truths of Christmas and the reason behind Christmas uh, would become a more securing anchor for your soul, if you like, a more satisfying reality in your heart. So no matter whether or not today you end up with a broken candy cane uh, or, or the brand new Ford Raptor that we were talking about on, on Sunday, uh, even if your relationships are all good and rosy or some of our relationships are perhaps a little frayed, uh, that we would have something greater uh, to hold us in place. And so with that thought in mind and, and that thought creeping through my head, I thought that we'd look at how we can have a triple A Christmas. You like that? Regardless of whether we're delighting in the festivities of Christmas or we're dreading it, uh, how we could have this triple A Christmas. I'm not sure if my triple A metaphor, I'm not even sure if triple A is a, is a metaphor, is connected with taking the risk out of Christmas, you know, a triple A Christmas or giving you a reliable support, you know, like a triple A battery or whether it was just me being conveniently lazy because my, my sermon has three points that start with A. Um, you, can, you can work that out and whatever helps you the most. Often on Christmas Day, often when we come to the Christmas story, we, we read the Christmas narrative or part of it as we've, as we've done here this morning that's recorded for us in the Gospels. And they are full, these narratives that we find in the Gospels are full of the details of the event, what happened, what took place. The characters that we find in there, there's Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zachariah. The setting is, is there for us, most likely a, a little cave or a, a something hewn into a rock, an animal shelter that's actually attached to the inn that had no room for Mary and Joseph. Then there's the, the manger uh, that all, that's there, the shepherds and eventually some magi turn up and I think it's like children's pastors who love puppets so they put cows and sheep and donkeys and I think one year we had a camel uh, here into the story but they're, they're, they're creditable kind of inserts so we love to have them and, and in this event and overshadowing all this event weaving it all together is the inbreaking of the supernatural uh, activity of God to enter into his world into his creation and dwell in it as a baby there is the child there is the baby a person, God with us, as us, but not quite the same as us. In the eight brief verses that we read this morning, Matthew tells us how it was that the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Now, uh, Christ is not Jesus' surname, but it's a title that harks back to King David, uh, who was the anointed king of israel and over time and over the journey the term came to be associated the christ the term came to be associated with the promise uh, given to david of a future anointed one a future king who would come and be the light and the hope of god's people and matthew is telling us in this narrative that this birth this particular birth is the uh the answer the beginning uh, of that promise he tells us that this was all the supernatural work of the Spirit. Uh, a child in a, in a virgin's womb. He tells us of the young couple. They, they are of no importance. They come from obscurity. Uh, but they are an extremely faithful couple. Young parents of this unique child. 
whose actual name, whose, whose first name, if you like, is Jesus. And his name actually describes the role that he would fill in the world to be a savior. That's what the name Jesus actually means, that Yahweh saves. God saves his people. And Jesus is named after the role that he will fulfill, saving his people from the penalty of sin, from its power and, and its penalty. And Matthew records all these details from the mundane to the majestic to the miraculous and the marvelous as simple facts. He just states them as facts uh, that all fall in line with what Scripture has spoken about. This all happened to fulfill Scripture, all that Scripture hoped for over the centuries and facts that help us understand and see that the child at the center of this story The center of this Christmas story is Emmanuel, God with us. That this miraculous child is both human and God, what we call the incarnation. And we sang about it this morning, and Charles Wesley writes it so economically. He puts in that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel and Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, reflecting on this God and man consisting of one divine, mysterious person, this child. These are the facts. These are the historic details of the Christmas story that we read in the narratives each year. But what are the implications of these stories? What do they mean? What could they possibly mean for you and I sitting here in freeway? How could they change our lives and how could they change how we experience the events of our Christmas? Well, as I said, three implications are out of this first Christmas that can help us have a Christmas shaped by a greater reality than the mere details of our day today. And they are the adoption of Christmas, the atoning of Christmas and the abasing of Christmas. Three A's, a triple A Christmas. Am I on, Luke? Have I turned myself on, man? Oh, nice work, my friend. The adoption of Christmas. One of the most powerful uh, realities of Christmas is that Jesus is God with us. But perhaps more powerful than that is that it came from the pen of a Jewish author. Out of all the worldviews in history, the Jews held a very strong, very distinct view of God. God is infinite and personal, but he is not a being that's within creation. He is not a being that is a part of creation in, in any way. He exists infinitely, transcendently above it, with creation separate but contingent upon him for its existence. He creates all, but he is not in any way a part of creation. Everything in a Jewish worldview militated against the idea that a human could be God or that God could become human. And yet, Jesus Christ, by his life and in his claims and by his resurrection, proved and convinced his closest Jewish friends that he was not just another prophet telling them about God, how to find God, how to live appropriately before God, but is in fact God himself. God come to find us and in finding us, hold out an invitation of adoption into a new family, one in which 
this Jesus is actually our brother, as the writer of Hebrews and Romans say, and he makes God our heavenly father. Athanasius, one of my all-time favorite people in church history, says this of Jesus. Christ became what we are, that we might become what he is. That is the marvelous exchange. He enters our lives that we might enter his. Behold, God, the son who has become our brother. The apostle Paul was writing to the Galatian church and he was commenting on this Christmas event in chapter 4. And he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, when Christmas had arrived, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because God came into the world, sent his son, gifted his son. Here is the beginning. Here is the opening of of our hearts being transformed so that we can now relate to God as, as Abba, Father, good father, close father. So you are so you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, an heir through all that God has. Paul is saying Christmas begun the adoption process for us. The writer of the Gospel of John, who describes the Christmas events in terms that the the eternal word, the word that was eternal, the word that was with God and is God, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he finishes off his Christmas account by saying, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Through this Jesus, we get the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, or the will of man, but of God. John is saying that this is a supernatural adoption that that, that Christmas uh, offers us, literally changing who you are, literally changing your reality, your position before God. Christmas is God coming to adopt us back into his family, making us part of God's family in a way that God sees us as brothers and sisters with Jesus, with the full rights and privileges of of the Son of Jesus. Jesus changes his experience of reality. The Word becomes flesh at Christmas in order to change ours, not merely uh, for us or near us in theory, God has put on flesh, become one of us in humanity. Emmanuel, God with us, entering the darkness and brokenness of of our story to bring us a better one, to bring us a brighter one in him. Christmas and the incarnation, the Emmanuel, did not just happen merely to let us know that God exists. It happened to bring us near to God. It happened so that in Jesus, a strange Estranged sinners could be adopted by a loving father as children of his eternal care and blessing. That is the adoption of Christmas. Well, secondly, Christmas is about atoning. And we normally kind of think of atonement well, it's connected with Easter, but it, it begins with Christmas. When God showed up at Christmas, it was not as a, a pillar of fire or some 
fearsome earthquake. He wasn't in the wind. It wasn't like a big tornado or some such terrifying display of power. He came as a baby. He came as a person of Jesus. Vulnerable. Approachable. Why would God do this? Why does God come vulnerable when, he, when God wishes to come and be our saviour? To be our great rescuer? Why does he come as something weak? Something as weak as a baby, as a person? Rather than, rather than the firestorm, rather than, than the whirlwind. Some great display of power as he has done throughout the Old Testament. Well, because this time... God has not come to bring judgment. God has not come to describe judgment. But God has come to bear judgment. He has not come out of anger towards sin, but to pay the penalty of our sins. And in doing so, take away the barrier and the distance between humanity and God. The one in Mary's womb is to be called a savior. Here is God with us. Come to make an atonement. Come to reunite sinful people with a holy God. How can he do this? Well, by becoming killable. By adding mortality to his divinity. By identifying with us fully in what it is to be human. The intended outcome of Christmas is clear. For God to bring us into his family, those who have been tragically orphaned from him, will be done by not merely being like us, but in exchanging places with us. Exchanging the place of sinful rebellion, exchanging the place of wrath that our our rebellious attitude towards God has positioned us in. The incarnation means Jesus gained a human body that in turn could be sacrificed to endure the wrath of God. This is... The only way that humanity can be saved from their sins. Someone, someone had to pay for them. Spurgeon explains it like this. Sin has separated God and humanity. But the incarnation bridges that separation. It's a prelude to the atoning sacrifice. But in its prelude, it is full of the richest hope. From henceforth, when God looks upon man, he will remember that his own son is a man. From this day forth, when he beholds the sinner, if his wrath should burn, he will remember that his own son, as a man, stood in the sinner's place, bore the sinner's doom, atoning for the sins that are, and setting us free from their condemnation and their power. When we understand the purpose for which Jesus becomes incarnate, with the purpose Jesus becomes a baby, became human, was to deal with our sins himself, that keeps us separate from God, we can sing that carol, hark the herald angels sing, with a newfound wonder, with a newfound worship, as we consider the nature of the newborn Jesus and the purpose for which he came. Christmas atonement, atonement means in Christ, you now approach God as a loving father because your sinless brother Jesus has borne the wrath of God for you. At Christmas, we remember the lengths that God has gone to to call us his own. He has not loved us from a distance, but he has thrust himself fully into the brokenness of our story to bring us securely into his loving family forever. 
He intercedes on our behalf at just the right time to make us our own, atoning for sin in a way that we could never. In the Christmas story, God says, God initiates. He moves towards us. He says, I see where you are and I am coming after you. Christmas says, you are far more wicked than you dare admit. God must come. But you are far more loved than you ever dare imagine. God must come. Christmas is both terrifying and wonderful at the same time. Christmas is the story of atonement. And then finally, Christmas is about abasing. Abasing is not something you do to your Christmas roast. Abasing is the activity of making yourself or, or being made to seem less important. It's, it's the activity of demotion. Uh, publicly uh, demoting your prestige, demoting, lowering your esteem. That is what it is to abase oneself. Normally when it comes to the activity of abasing, it's normally the weak being abased by the powerful or the lesser abasing themselves to show they know their place before the greater. We abase ourselves sometimes to gain favor, to gain sympathy, to come into the presence of something so great at christmas god exchanges the glory and the riches of heaven for obscurity and poverty eventually shame and ignominy. at christmas it is not us groveling to impress god us abasing ourselves us coming in self-loathing to earn or gain approval to earn or, or find sympathy from god christmas says none of that is necessary Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, reminding them that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, might become valuable, esteemed. Jesus sets aside his position in the universe as its great king to be born into a family, with parents who are ridiculously poor, who live in a town that's so insignificant it didn't even make it onto the listing on Israel's Google Maps. In Christmas, God is left out in the cold to go and be born in a stable. Any other king, any other powerful figure would have come with great fanfare, a royal entourage to impress, to overshadow, to abase others, to build themselves up. But God comes seeking to save and restore in utter humility and total weakness. God makes room for us to approach him. God stoops down to us to be approachable. God demotes himself in a way which he remains fully God but becomes fully approachable, fully knowable. The incarnation, or in the incarnation, Jesus never considered equality with God something to be selfishly hoarded, something that he must prove, but rather he made himself nothing. In Christmas, Jesus empties himself of the expectations and the demands of prestige and worship by becoming one of us, fully man, and yet never ceasing to be God. Think about how scandalous that is how scandalous that sounds 
That is what it is to be loved more than you dare imagine. To have the God of creation abase himself so that you and I could be remade in his likeness and in his, in his image. So that we could be sons and daughters in his family, the family of God. Brothers and sisters of the risen Lord Jesus with all the rights and the privileges that heaven can afford. God abases himself to make us rich. Jesus didn't just dip his toe into our broken world. He dove in and immersed himself in the full experience of its rebellious dysfunction, but without ever and in no way succumbing to that rebellious dysfunction and sin himself. The Son of God did not come by way of extravagant and elaborate fanfare, but rather crawled into our world through a manger and journeyed in our world to a cross where he would die for our sins so that we could be adopted by God. Look down at the manger. He who was rich for our sake became poor. Though being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. See how low he stooped. Behold the glory of God amongst the brokenness of our world. Behold Emmanuel, God with us, who has adopted the orphans. God who atones for our sins. God who abases himself that we might be restored with full and unshakable dignity as the children of God. A Merry Christmas, Freeway. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that we have inscribed into our own calendars, that we have, over these centuries, set apart to remember the day that you chose uh, to enter into human history, to enter into our experience. Thank you that you're a God who does not merely stay distant or disinterested in our situation, but you're a God who initiates great love and great grace that you would come and reconcile us back to you, that you would come and adopt us into uh, your family, that you would come and deal with our sin that separates us uh, from you in a way where you are the one who is crushed, you are the one who is humiliated, and we are the ones who are lifted up. And today at Christmas we we celebrate, we remember uh, the beginning of that story in human time and space. And I pray that as we go about our day and as we head off to our, our families and, and places uh, where we will enjoy Christmas or perhaps, as, who knows, we head off to um, spaces of loneliness. We pray that Emmanuel, God with us, holds us securely in place in all that transpires today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.